and welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Very exciting. You might notice that uh, this is an in-person podcast recording. It's our first one. And to commemorate the occasion today, I am joined uh, by Arturo Castellanos. Arturo, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me back, Eric, and delighted to be here at this beautiful studio. Yes, uh, we are both in uh, Washington, D.C., courtesy of uh, Switch and Board Podcast Studios. Highly recommend them. Uh, it's kind of cold out today, and this week, Arturo, you've been here for about a week or so. Uh, so glad we're able to, to catch up and chat uh, uh, immigration, national immigration forum, and things on the horizon. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure uh, being here in such a beautiful city and in good company with you, Eric. Good Pre to see you again. Yeah, great to see you again. Appreciate the kind words. And yeah, no, thank you so much for, for hopping on. Uh, before we started recording, we were chatting that uh, last year, I think you were the third or fourth episode of when we launched uh, our podcast series. And your episode was very popular throughout the year. So uh, very much looking forward to continuing this conversation, continuing this, uh, this, this friendship and relationship. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, honestly, uh, I'm I'm very happy that you say that because it was my debut in the podcast world, so I'm glad uh, I'm glad we did well. Yes, yes, exactly. And hopefully, those invitations will keep coming. <laughs> totally. Uh, so, Arturo, before um, you know, we have a lot of great topics to discuss, but um, you know, when I just wanted to get started, just talking a little bit more about discussing your background. You have a very uh, interesting and you know really romantic background. Um, so can you just talk about your personal immigration story to the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, I, one of the reasons why I started working in the immigration advocacy field is because I'm an immigrant myself. Uh, I came to the United States seven years ago, a little bit over seven years. And um, now that we have a, a St. Valentine's occasion to, to talk about this, um, let me tell you the story why I came to the U.S. seven years ago. Uh, the, the day was May 3rd, 2013. And I remember the exact day because it was only one day before I turned 25. I was watching President Barack Obama deliver one of the most incredible speeches I've heard in, in my entire life. He was delivering a speech to Mexican students at the Mexican Museum of Anthropology. Mm -hmm. He was citing uh, Mexican authors speaking Spanglish <laughs> and giving a, a great speech about hope. And uh, I was I was delighted to be hearing those those words from a, coming from a Mexican from from an American president, and um, suddenly in the middle of the speech, a good friend of mine called me saying he was about to um, to get engaged. He was going to propose, and he wanted me to be part of that celebration. So, of course, I was super happy for him. I went to the celebration, had fun with him, and uh, in the in the party, I couldn't stop talking about this wonderful speech, this marvelous speech from the US, from the American president. And fortunately, I didn't, I didn't stop because on the 11th time that I, that I kept talking about it, uh, a good friend of mine said, oh, did you like it? My, my, my best friend was sitting in the front row. Uh, she actually shook hands with Obama and she said, nice to meet you, Mr. President. And he replied, nice to meet you. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, uh, who is this, this lady, you know? And she was like, yeah, yeah, and my, my friend, she's so cool that she was interviewed by CNN after the, after the, the address, and, and her interview will be here tomorrow. So, of course, I was intrigued to know who this person was. So I set up my alarm clock, and the first time I saw who is now my wife was on CNN, giving, a, giving an interview to CNN about the, the visit of President Barack Obama. So I immediately called this friend and, uh, and said, you know, please introduce me 
to, to Paulina. And she was like, yeah, of course, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to introduce you. So uh, we went, they were in a bar. And uh, of course, my, my Paulina didn't know about my existence. Uh, so when we went to, to this bar, this friend said, Arturo, Paulina, Paulina Arturo. And I said, uh, oh, you know, she doesn't need introduction. I already know her. Uh, she's famous from the TV. She's <laughs> friends with Obama. And she looked at me like, what? <laughs> Did you really watch that? And um, well, we, we, we spent three hours talking about Latin American literature, uh, Aristotle. I promise it was a fun night. That is why we were in a bar, we were talking about those things. And um, she said, you know, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Let me tell you something. I'm on my way to start my process to go to the United States. I want to apply for the Fulbright Scholarship. You're more than welcome to join me in the process, but I'm not waiting. So <laughs> you, can, you can join me in this process. So we both decided to, to apply to come to do our, our uh, graduate degrees in the United States. I did a, a Master of Laws. She eventually was awarded the Fulbright Scholarship and she did a Master's in Public Administration. And you know, during that time, uh, I was, I, in telling this story, I realized how lucky I was, or we were lucky, to move to the United States voluntarily, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we had a choice. Uh, we wanted to come here to explore and fulfill our uh, academic and, and personal and professional goals. Uh, but not everyone who comes to the United States has that that freedom, that, that right. liberty to choose. Some are forced to come here because they're facing uh, persecution, fleeing uh, gang violence, uh, many, many other reasons why they come to the United States. But the goal is the same. We want to contribute to the to the workforce. We want to make this, this country a better place to live. Uh, we want to uh, find a, uh, a better way of life. And, and that's what excites me the most about working in the immigration advocacy field, uh, working with many like me who see this this country as a, as a place of opportunity. Yeah, and well, and the, the stats back it up, right, with the contributions of immigrants throughout the entire history of, of the United States, uh, go back to the founding of the country and up until now, the immigrant contributions, and we'll get into some of the additional studies uh, in a bit and talk about them, but you look, if there weren't immigrants, the U.S. economy would not be number one in the world and continuing to grow as it is. Uh, but are, are the quick, quick uh, in your in your article that you wrote about um, the uh, meeting your wife, your now wife. Uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed when you called out specifically what President Obama was talking about. Uh, you wrote in the middle of the speech when Obama was talking about the Mexican community in Little Village, Chicago. Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is just because uh, my parents grew up in Little Village. Um, really? Yes. My so my both sets of my grandparents are uh, of uh, Hispanic origin, came over from Mexico, and then uh, my mom and dad were born and grew up in that Little Village area. So um, my for a time, my grandparents uh, both both sets, yeah, they both lived in 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 the vicinity. So growing up, kind of uh, just kind of was in that area too and so yeah just a little little kind of like a third third degree of separation in a way <laughs> well th th that's amazing and and let me tell you uh, chicago is perhaps one of my favorite cities in the united states if not my favorite i two years ago i had the pleasure and the privilege of running the chicago marathon and about the time when i was running through la villita through a little village i was so exhausted about to <laughs> i wanted to start crying but suddenly there was a mariachi band playing yeah. 
for the runners. And <laughs> it's difficult to explain what that made in my brain, but I just kept going. I was happy. There were people giving out uh, uh, bananas and giving, you know, uh, cheering on runners. So my my favorite part of the Chicago Marathon is the part that goes through through Little Village. Yep, yep. Are you training for the this edition of the marathon or, or any other marathons? I I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> it's I, a commitment. It's a commitment. And uh, last year I ran a marathon. It didn't go as expected. So, <laughs> you know, it's... it's. Um, but yeah, it's a great way to explore new cities in yeah. the United States. Uh, you run for 20, 26 miles, 26 miles uh, yeah. exploring a new city. So... So why not? I would love to run in a in a new city in the U.S. Hopefully. What was the marathon that you ran in? Detroit. Detroit. Which was gorgeous, and particularly for for a, for an immigration advocate, because it's one of the only few marathons in the world that crosses an international border. So uh, you start in Detroit, cross to the Canadian side, and run for one quarter of the of the kilometer um, of the marathon. Sorry, mm -hmm. in the Canadian side. Then you come back. So you cross two, one international bridge, you come back through an international tunnel, and uh, it was it was it was beautiful. Yeah. You know, uh, it was a, it was a great experience uh, as an immigration advocate, as a runner, and uh, honestly, I was pleasantly surprised by how beautiful, vibrant Detroit is. Yeah, Detroit. Uh, Detroit is uh, on the rebound. Uh, you m we might not always hear about it, but. If you're living there and from uh, ha I have a few friends that have visited and it very it's, it's it's on the upswing absolutely and with lots of personality you yes. know you you can identify Detroit's own personality yeah yeah um, so if someone out there wants to visit Detroit I, <laughs> I, would, I would definitely encourage you to go to visit Detroit for sure definitely yes uh, so Arturo uh, moving on to the you know kind of first main one of the main topics of conversation uh, we're recording this at the end of January, early 2024. Uh, a little bit of back context, but I think the last time we, we we chatted, we were still in the early part of the year when we were hearing from economists, politicians, anyone who had an opinion that 2023 was going to be the year of a recession in, in the U.S. That never happened. Um, in fact, we're still dealing with a major labor shortage here. Uh, latest statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, at the end of De as of December 2023, there was a 3.7 unemployment rate and 8.8 uh, .8 million job openings. So Arturo, what role are immigrants playing in helping prevent an economic recession and continuing to help the U.S. economy grow, which as of, uh, I believe, it grew of a little over 5% um, in, in, uh, in the Q4 of uh, 2023? You raise a very, very important point, and, and we at the National Immigration Forum have been uh, closely monitoring the situation of the, lab of the labor shortages affecting all the states in, in the United States. As you said, uh, right now, this labor shortage looks, uh, we are seeing only five available workers for every, job, every nine job openings every, every month. And uh, unemployment rate is at a very low 3.7% nationally. I know unemployment is one of those uh, statistics that, that show that the economy is vibrant and, and, and it tends to be a good factor. But when it, it lasts for so long, it can be a symptom of a very big problem, the one that we're experiencing, that there aren't enough workers 
in the United States to tackle the labor shortage and to help the United States operate at full steam. Um, and when we look, I mean, it's 3.7% three nationally, but when we look to specific states, mm -hmm. uh, take for instance, Maryland and North Dakota, the unemployment rate has been below 2% for, uh, for the last year. Uh, and I was very interested to see uh, last week, the US Chamber of Commerce published that uh, there are 1.7 million workers missing from the workforce compared to February 2020, right before the pandemic. Uh, and there are many reasons or there are many explanations to, to try to understand why there are less workers in the United States. We are seeing um, an, a, a population that is, that is rapidly aging, mm -hmm. uh, a population that is uh, with, a, with a very low fertility rate of only 1.8 uh, children per woman which is uh, below replacement. And um, fortunately, one of the uh, aces uh, under the sleeve of the United States is that it keeps attracting a lot of immigrants to the United States. Uh, in the past few years, the population has, has, has continued to grow, but it has grown very, very slowly. Uh, in 2021, we saw the slowest uh, growth of the U.S. population in, 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 in the history of the country, only 0.1%, uh, perhaps accentuated by, by the pandemic. But then the following year, uh, 2022, we saw a slight increase to 0.1, sorry, 0.4%, mm -hmm. which, is, which is good, but not great. Right. Particularly, um, the, out, in, out of this 0.4%, 80% of the of the population growth was driven by immigrants which i find fascinating it's immigrants who continue to to make this country a country of, of great economic opportunities and continue to help the economic growth mm -hmm. and you know you mentioned some of the the states that are having you know historically low unemployment rates uh north dakota maryland and i'm sure there are a few others uh, in your in your studies and in, with your colleagues, the national at the National Immigration Forum, um, have you guys discussed the uh, I guess currents? Uh, we're seeing we're seeing an influx of immigrants, uh, uh, you know, seeking asylum, um, and they're you know currently living in cities where maybe the resources aren't aren't there yet to to help. Do you think? there's ever a scenario where the US government, whether it's you know now or in the future, changes the system to make it easier for these immigrants to work? Uh, we're reaching a point where it's, 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 it's th that, that's growing more and more important. Uh, you know, recently the, the US Census Bureau published uh, a really interesting uh, radiography of, of, the, of the US demographics showing that um, there are 335 million people living in the United States, and 40, 45 million of those are foreign-born. Mm -hmm. That represents 14% of the of the population. Uh, that's a number that keeps growing. Still far from the from the early decades of the 20th century, when that the, when the percentage of foreign-born population was uh, almost reaching 15%. So, and and there are some people who who argue that we are already uh, beyond capacity of, of immigrants. I would say that's not true. Mm -hmm. Even uh, compared to the US, Census, the US Census Bureau calculations from 2017, 
the, the, the immigration levels are still 2 million below the, the expectations. So there's still uh, a lot of room to grow uh, and we can bring more immigrants. And if the solutions don't come from the federal government, from Congress, from the administration in turn, uh, we might start seeing some uh, governments at, at state level yeah. advocating to make it easier for immigrants to stay and to go to those states. Uh, there are, there are, there are uh, even though there are only 14% of the population is foreign born, there are states where that percentage is even higher. Take for instance, California, uh, one in four uh, persons in, in, in people in that state are immigrants, 26%. In New Jersey, that number is 23%. New York, 22%. Uh, Florida, 21%. So to your question, uh, there is a definitely um, a growing interest among, among business leaders, faith leaders, uh, law enforcement leaders all over the country advocating for a, for a bipartisan immigration reform that reflects the need to bring in and retain the immigrants who are uh, working in the United States. Uh, you, you, you brought up a talking point or an opinion um, that I'm just curious to hear hear your thoughts on you you said you know there's a there, that talking point being like oh we're we're full there's no room to grow uh how do you and you know your the national immigration forum i guess you know dispute push back on that because it's it's not true it is not true and uh when you take a look at some of the key industries uh that are that are essential for the united states um let's start for instance we try to add, add to to bring arguments and, and, and data to the conversation. And let's take, for instance, how, what key industries are being affected by, by the lack of immigrants in the country and why we should bring in more immigrants to help tackle the labor shortages mm. and help the economy operate at full steam. Uh, in the country, there are 70, in, in, in agriculture, 73% of the labor in agriculture is foreign born. Worryingly, uh, this is an, an industry where, due to the lack of available visas, uh, around half of those 73% are undocumented. They're working in an industry that is essential for the, for the, for the United States. It's uh, food security. So we're trying to show that in, the agriculture, in, the, in, in agriculture, we're missing many, many workers and an, an industry where where we rely heavily on immigrants. Um, the healthcare industry is the same. 28% of the surgeons in this country are immigrants. Um, in the health, also uh, in the STEM industry, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, we're seeing 24% of them are immigrants, many of them sons or daughters of immigrants, and the number of foreign-borns in these industries and sectors keep growing. And you know what? Immigrants not only are here, here to, to fill jobs, they're also creating jobs and opportunities. 28% right. uh, of them run Main Street businesses mm -hmm. like laundromats, gas stations. So they are not only you know, filling jobs, but creating new jobs. Uh, so those are the, 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 the arguments that we are trying to show. Um, well, and a, you know, a, a mega, <laughs> mega example of that is look at some of the most well-known companies that we utilize every day, Google being probably one of the biggest, started by immigrants. We could go on and on and on with a list of, of immigrants who came to the United States. Uh, many of them came as international students. Yep. Uh, others are, are sons or daughters of, of immigrants. Uh, I was, for instance, one of the 
uh, of the founders and uh, I mean, during the pandemic, the founder of Moderna, he's yes. also a, a, an immigrant. And we could go on and on and on with a long list of immigrants who, who are developing great initiatives. There are some studies showing that bringing in more international students catapult the numbers of, of patents per capita in a country. Mm -hmm. So if the United States wants, wants to remain competitive in, in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, producing innovative patents, it's important to, to keep bringing more international students. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What type, what kind of, how much political capital do you think is needed to introduce and ultimately implement immigration reform? I know as we're speaking, there is a potential uh, bipartisan uh, solution working its way through the Senate. Um, the specifics haven't been released yet, um, but I think that package is likely more focused on on the southern border. But what we're talking about, you know, the the work visas, employment visas, helping individuals as they come in through the asylum system. How much political capital is needed, and and what has to happen in order for us to see that? We have to engage in a frank and open conversation. Uh, this is a difficult topic that divides many, yeah. uh, the, the topic of, of immigration. And that's something that we are the, at the National Immigration Forum are trying to identify the commonalities uh, in, in the conversation. That's why we work very, very closely with um, groups of people that we consider unexpected allies in the immigration front. So we work closely with, uh, with business leaders, you know, with uh, tra transnational companies who are struggling to hire and they're telling us firsthand all the difficulties, difficulties they, they are experiencing. So we are trying to bring these voices to Congress to show um, senators and representatives that people within their districts and states are struggling to, to hire and they would benefit from a, from, a, from a smart immigration reform. We're seeing the same thing with, uh, you know, faith leaders. Uh, the the congregations of in, in the United States are shrinking. Uh, they are the the message of, of of the religions are messages of love, of loving thy neighbors. So that's why it's important to bring these conversations into the narrative, uh, trying to convince uh, the the representatives and senators who may think that that engaging in uh, bipartisan immigration reform could be potentially, they could be potentially losing votes. On the contrary, what we want to show them is that uh, it, would, it would strengthen their, their candidacies because this is something that a lot of people in the country want. I would dare to say that the vast majority. Definitely. Uh, going back to, um, you brought up some interesting statistics uh, about the birth rate in the US and kind of what that means moving forward. Uh, at Towards the end of 2023, I believe it was the Census Bureau, which you uh, Bureau, which you referenced, uh, they actually put out an interesting uh, study slash paper looking at birth rates in the U.S. and future population projections. Um, and in that report, the U.S. population by 2080, it's projected to reach a high of almost 370 million uh, before it starts to start to decline. Um, and they put out a few different scenarios uh, taking into account immigration or no immigration. And so going, kind of going through some of those numbers and then we can um, dive into them a little bit more. So by 2100, uh, total population, if immigration is in the middle, as they call it, our population would reach 366 million. If immigration is in the high tier, high immigration population would potentially be 435 million. Um, 
And if not, the low immigration scenario population in the U.S. is projected to peak at around 346 million in 2043 and then decline to approximately 319 million in 20 in the year 2100. Um, they also introduced a scenario of a zero immigration uh, where that would project uh, immigration uh, population declines starting theoretically this year if there is no foreign-born immigration and the entire population would then decline to 226 million in 2100 um and so i guess you know just hearing these numbers um and we'll link the the report in the in the episode description so everyone can check it out i guess just what are your thoughts on a couple of these projections and numbers from the census bureau uh, with immigration without immigration zero immigration they're worrying, aren't they? I, I, I find them. I, I, I'm an optimist by nature, so I try to see the glass half full. And this is, I see this as a great opportunity to open, open our eyes as a country and try to uh, be smart about how to uh, bring in more immigrants, to, how to retain those who are already here. So I, I, I see it as a, as a, as a big opportunity to, to bring more immigrants because this is not only affecting the United States. The, the population growth is affecting almost all the developing nations, um, mm. or the, sorry, the developed nations out there. Uh, I'm not sure if, if, if this this year, this month um, there were two there were two quotes from the the Chinese and Russian governments respectively calling for women to have more children. They are particularly worried that those two countries are also starting to decline rapidly, uh, and they don't have the 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 net immigration rates that the United States does have mm-hmm. uh, in China the, it, they have a, a negative immigration rate more people are leaving the country than those who are coming uh, Russia you know it's it's a, a roller coaster of of, of uh, people going in and out but the United States has a very robust influx of, of immigrants uh, last year after a, a very slow period of, of net immigra- immigration um, growth the the u.s finally brought one over a little bit over one million immigrants um to the u.s that's what drove most of the population growth in Mm -hmm. the united states so those numbers that you project that the u.s census bureau project they're definitely worrying Mm -hmm. but they're worrying only if we don't act upon them we have that opportunity to see those statistics and uh and try to figure out how can immigrants help the United States um, be as competitive as possible. What programs or initiatives uh, can the government, whether it's current administration or future administrations, take to achieve that high immigration scenario of you know, a population peak of 435 million in, in the year 2100? There are, the, the administrations have limited uh, alternatives to increase the number of migrants, but they do have some things that they can do to improve the, the whole process. They can uh, tackle the USCIS bottleneck that is affecting many migrants who are unable to, to get uh, their the, the work permits on time. Uh, <clears throat> I know the, the Biden administration has been working hard to the re- reduce the backlog at U.S. consulates. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, we're starting to see some pilot programs where... Um, in Ireland, for instance, they are the United States is issuing um, electronic visas to specific uh, Irish people 
trying to see if the, if that works, that would reduce the time that uh, a passport and a visa has to go through many, many hands. Uh, we're trying, we're seeing also a pilot program where some H-1B visa recipients do not have to go to their, to their country of origin to renew their visa. They can renew their visa, their H-1B while being in the United yeah. States, which saves millions of dollars to many companies, mm -hmm. to the employees themselves, and that, you know, make, makes, make things more efficient. Um, there are some there are some alternatives being used there, increasing the number of H2Bs, H2As that are uh, available, reducing the bureaucracy around, around these. Um, we could also start recapturing green cards, you know? Um, there are some efforts right now, the, the administration is discussing a notice of proposed rulemaking on updating Schedule A, which is a great alternative for the, for the administration to make things easier for employers to bring in more immigrants. Um, this is an occupational list of sectors that are experiencing labor shortages, and um, they don't have to go through all the labor certification process. So that's that's something going on with the current administration. And one topic that I'm particularly interested about is uh, developing strategies to retain and attract international students. Uh, <laughs> I'm biased because it's how I came to the United yeah. States, and it one one topic that I'm uh, particularly interested. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, yes, it, you, I guess, Tracen, going back to your, your, your journey. So I guess maybe for those who aren't aware of, you know, how an international student might come to the U.S., uh, you and other students came in on the, the F-1 visa? I came with an F-1 visa. And F-1, just quick, quick 101 synopsis. F-1 visa is the visa that one obtains in order to study in the United States. And are you allowed? Well, to one of the many. That's the one that I got. That's the most popular one. Yeah. And are you allowed to work on an F one? That's an interesting point. Uh, I I was allowed to work, but that that was limited to on campus work and up to twenty hours per week. Uh, so the OPT. That's after after I graduate. Ah. After after graduation, uh, you are eligible for OPT. Mm -hmm. If if that's for twelve months after you graduate. Uh, if however your um, your degree was on the, on the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, you can stay up to 36 months with an OPT. Mm -hmm. But while, we, while I was a student, I was unable to work, uh, or I was able to work, but just on campus. And uh, I argue that's one of the many, many reasons why the United States is perhaps losing international students to other countries. Right. So, yeah, in uh, 2022, uh, the Department of Homeland Security Students and Exchange Visitor Information System, um, they received about 1.3 million international students in 2022. Uh, or, and that was actually a 10% decrease from 2021. And uh, if you compare it to pre-pandemic levels, that's still 10% below pre-pandemic levels. Um, I do know... And, uh, and so I'm sure you you know that the international student population had you know st started to decline um, you know in the in the in the during the Trump administration, um, but then COVID obviously had a big fat played a huge factor into that. Um, and so, what problems are that you've identified that are contributing to the number of international students uh, coming to the U.S. and why that's declining? Thank you for raising that point because some people some people think that just because the United States is the is by far still is by far the lar the largest recipient of international students in the world that there's that there's nothing to to fix 
Uh, I think otherwise. Let me tell you why. Because although the U.S. is the largest recipient of international students, as we said, as you said, that number is declining. Uh, just to compare what what was happening in the year 2000, the the U.S. was uh, had 50, uh, had 28 percent of the global share of international students. In 24 years, that percentage has decreased to 15%. So we had lost 13% of the total share of international students to other countries that are doing things better than us, th countries that are uh, becoming more appealing and attractive for international, international students to go there and study. And it's a matter to be concerned of because uh, international uh, students contributed over 37 billion, billion with a B, to the economy in 2022. And that represented a four billion decline compared to to, to, to to 2019. So it's particularly worrying from an economic standpoint, not only for for what they give while they're here as students, but what they, what they can give to the United States after they graduate. So it's important to pay attention uh, and develop policies and strategies to retain and attract international students. Under the current system, how can and what route do you typically see well with students, you know, so they come in on the F1, graduate, work on OPT or STEM OPT, then what's the journey now and is that working? There are very few alternatives for international students who come to the United States to stay, reside and work. Uh, the most popular one, as discussed, is the, the OPT, which allows F1 students to stay for up to 12 months uh, and work here. Uh, if there is a, if they if they went through a STEM program, they are eligible to stay up to thirty six years. There are others. Months. Sorry, thirty six months. Thirty six months. Yeah, <laughs> that it would be ideal for them to stay thirty six years. Thirty six months. Uh, there are other students who come to the to the United States with J one visa. Uh, that's another type of visa that allows a specific type of students to remain here. One that many medical students use, mm -hmm. and unfortunately after medical students graduate, uh, they are forced to go back to their home countries for up to two years before becoming eligible to come back with a permanent visa. That is creating a lot of trouble for many, for many in the United States, particularly at a time when there's a shortage of doctors. Um, so that's one. Luckily for many uh, Canadians and Mexicans like myself, there is also an opportunity to obtain a TN visa, mm -hmm. but that's uh, something that is only limited for Mexicans and Canadians. And also, there are many lucky and great candidates who obtain H-1B visas. They are eligible for H-1Bs after graduating, but these are competitive. The number is capped, and uh, we've seen many of the problems going on with, uh, with uh, all the system. Um, so, as I said, the, the, the options for international students are very limited. And do you think that's playing, do you think that's a factor uh, when an why the population could be decline is declining when you, if you're an international student, you're looking at the U.S., you're going to come here to study, but then what are your options after work, after graduating compared to Canada? You mentioned Canada. Um, I don't know the specifics off the top of my head, but I do know that they've, uh, they have a lot of programs in place to kind of make it easier for, for international students to go there, obtain a degree and stay and work and eventually put them on a path to permanent residency. Of course, it is definitely one of the many factors that, that an individual or a couple may consider when, when finding where to do an international degree abroad. Um, Canada, for instance, allows uh, 
allows students and the spouses of students to work while, while one of them are, are obtaining the degrees, not in the United States. Mm -hmm. We're limited to, to there. Uh, also, you know how expensive graduate degrees are here in the United States. Um, some studies show that uh, native-born American students, 85% of them rely on, on extracurricular work mm -hmm. in order to pay for their tuition. That's not an option for many of the international students uh, here in the United States, but it is somewhere else. So those are the, so some of the factors that, that, uh, are, that are reducing the appeal among international students and why the, the, the prestige of international education is declining. Yeah. Do you, and this is maybe, and this is us, this is probably you like, you know, putting on your, if you're the immigration policy chief, uh, do you think it would be beneficial if, if uh, the U.S. were to create a, you know, a dedicated path for, for students? So you mentioned the H-1B, the, the lottery is coming up in a, in a few months. They'll, those, those students are competing to obtain an H-1B with other professionals, um, you know, if they're a first-time, you know, worker in the U.S. and they're trying to get an H-1B. Do you, do you think it would be beneficial to create a system maybe replicating Canada where you come in on an F-1, put you on a path towards ultimately obtaining a green card? Absolutely, that would be that would be ideal. It would be um, it would be beneficial for the state. It would be beneficial for uh, the, the the international students. Interestingly, the United States also has uh, um, gives more leeway to the to the let's call them governors of the states. Mm -hmm. uh, the states can apply for you as a candidate, uh, depending on, on the labor shortages that they're experiencing. So if you are a, a potential good candidate to, to tackle one of those labor shortages, you become more easily uh, eligible. And uh, while I was in Mexico City, my, my hometown, I remember the Canadian embassy organized plenty of, of you know, fairs and uh, events where they, they would showcase the the their their universities mm -hmm. and they have great success i mean because it, it gives you a, a first a first an opportunity to see uh how your life would be like uh, if you go to canada um and the fact that the united states is the largest recipient of, of international students perhaps they're not paying as much attention as other countries in in doing that approach and that reaching out to to potential prospective international students yeah. uh you mentioned uh you know when we were talking about a few minutes ago about international students and their path after graduation obviously there's the h1b uh, but then there are alternatives to the h1b one being the tn visa uh, which you were on correct yes uh so yeah just diving a little bit more into the tn uh you put out an article um how uh you know how the tn uh to to tackle labor shortages um so yeah i guess uh, before we dive into that one i guess can you just briefly explain the tn visa what it is uh, and how it, how it operates? Of course, the TN visa is uh, it's a visa that allows Mexicans and Canadians to work temporarily in the United States for up to three years uh, and with the potential to renew them indefinitely. You know, this is a great visa uh, that is uncapped. Mm -hmm. It is low cost for employees or employers. Um, it is indefinitely renewable uh, and it helps to tackle labor shortages uh, in the United States. And the great point about that as well is that I think diplomatically, it positively impacts the relations between the United States with the Canadian government and the Mexican government. So um, it's a great visa that stems from the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, uh, now USMCA. 
Uh, and it is so good that after renegotiating NAFTA and turning into USMCA, they decided to keep it in place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has a high approval rate. It is honestly the most, as long as you demonstrate that you are, uh, that, you, that your profession belongs to a list of 60, 60 something categories, you can work in the United States. So, so it's a great alternative uh, with, as I suggest, the potential to replicate the model to other countries. What, what aspects of the TN uh, would you want to see replicated with, you know, ideally? For, for a while, I've been working on the potential to expand bilateral labor agreements with other countries, uh, particularly because it would give the United States the potential to identify those specific areas where they need workers mm -hmm. and where, where perhaps there is a, uh, there are too many workers or, or workers wanting to leave their, their countries of origin. Um, so that th the ability to identify those professions that the United States where the United States need workers, professions and, and trades perhaps, the United States also needs agricultural workers. We could do it through a bilateral labor agreement with countries that are allies of the United States who would both would benefit, right? The United States would get the, la the, the labor they need and other countries with, uh, with a more robust demographic, with a more robust population, uh, perhaps where the unemployment rate is way higher, like Mexico. They could they could open that opportunity to work with with uh, with countries that are close allies to the United States. So, Arturo, uh, you know, when if, if thinking about replicating, I guess what would that look like in terms of process? Obviously, everything's got to go through the government, but you know, what again, what would that look like? It it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be easy. Yeah. Let's start with that. It wouldn't be easy, uh, but it's not impossible, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we have the the. That's why we got NAFTA. Um, first, the, the the administration, the executive power, which is in charge of negotiating, the, in charge of the of the foreign policy of the United States, would have to engage with other governments to see if there is a potential to start a bilateral labor agreement. Uh, if approved, that process, that potential treaty, would have to be approved by the Senate. Um, it would have to be approved also by the other countries, Congress. And um, after that, honestly, I mean, it sounds too easy, <laughs> but uh, it requires political will. Yeah. Uh, it requires to engage with strong diplomacy with other countries in the region and throughout the world um, of people with, and, and bringing people who want to work here and uh, may not be finding the, the professional alternatives that they want in their countries of origin. And also, interestingly, Many of the countries, like Mexico and, and many in the region, they heavily benefit from remittances. So it wouldn't be a, a brain drain from these countries. On the contrary, it would be an opportunity to to bring more people here and send money to to their countries. Back home, yeah, for sure. Back home. Uh, so Arturo, you know, uh, as, as we're uh, approaching on uh, on wrapping up, um, I think. You know, final uh, free flow of, of conversation. We are in an election year. Uh, we, we'll we'll stay away from getting too far down that rabbit hole. But uh, you know, it is towards the end of the year. What's uh, what does the twenty twenty four hold for for yourself in the National Immigration Forum? Knowing that you know there is an election coming up and immigration policy may change starting next January. 
Uh, oof, what a what a question! But let me tell you, I, as I said, I'm an optimist by nature, and I work uh, in an organization that is full of optimists. So we're trying to see this as an opportunity to have uh, deep and frank conversations about what's the potential to to use all the immigration force that wants to come to the United States and help tackle the labor shortages that the United States uh, is experiencing. Uh, it will be a, a year where we instead of creating divisive um, divisive language, we have to build bridges. We have to uh, be real diplomats, understanding that we all want to see the United States succeed. We may have a different approach to see to, to that success. There are many, many different ways. Uh, but understanding that we want the best for the country, that we have the best interests in mind of the people, uh, that's what that's what's going to help us move forward and, and hopefully have a 2025 where immigrants are playing an, a, an even, even larger role in the U.S. economy. Uh, as, uh, similarly, how does, how does your organization you know, work with, you mentioned businesses and other individuals who may not realize it, but they, they stand to benefit from in, immigrants? Um, you know, let's say a company reaches out to you what what does that process or relationship look like? Interesting. First, uh, we we we, saw, we see this as a, as a symbiotic relationship where where they benefit benefit from our experience working with immigrants, and they give us the, the first kind of information of how they are struggling to mm -hmm. to find workers. Right. So based on the information that they provide, we try to to write papers, policy papers, showing the the struggles of the of the U.S. workforce and the benefits of immigration. Right. Um, as I said, once we have uh, a similar approach to the issue, we engage jointly and, and go to, um, to Congress. We have meetings with members of Congress uh, where we show them the, 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 the great support that they would have from, from the business leaders, from the immigration, from, yeah, from the business leaders if they support immigration. The same thing we do with faith leaders and national security leaders who may be concerned that the United States needs to attract more uh, students in the, in, the, in the STEM fields in order to remain competitive vis-a-vis -vis the other uh, economic and military competitors of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. uh, China, Russia. Um, also, uh, we engage with, uh, with law enforcement leaders in the country, sheriffs who know firsthand the importance of having the trust and the and the you know, the, the, the friendship with the immigrant communities because they need to report crimes. They, 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 if they are afraid of reporting crimes, if they are afraid of not uh, being engaged with the community, it creates an unsafe situation. So we, we, we go with these sheriffs, with members of Congress, showing them that these national security leaders, law enforcement leaders, uh, are uh, in favor of passing a bipartisan immigration reform. And for listeners, how can they reach out to National Immigration Forum? Yeah, great question, Eric. If you want to reach out to us, you can you can read our papers, you can uh, send us emails, you can find us at immigrationforum.org. Uh, you'll find my email and the emails of many of my colleagues. Feel free to to send us an email if we if we can help you in any way. If you have any ideas that we can work together, we would be more than happy. It's always a pleasure chatting with uh, my friends here from Envoy who do a phenomenal job trying to build those bridges and trying to keep the conversation um, 
at a point where, where we want to see the best for the United States yeah. uh, immigration system. It's been great chatting with you today, Arturo. Uh, final final question, and I'll turn it back turn it back over to you to, to wrap things up. Uh, we're still early enough in the year where I feel like we I could ask you this, but if you have one two predictions uh, for immigration this year, uh, what would they be? I want to see uh, a, a prediction for Dreamers passing. Perhaps uh, this is something that will be catalyzed by a, by an imminent. Uh, ruling from 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 the courts, uh, perhaps from the Supreme Court. We don't know. So I might. I think this is something. This is a process that might catalyze the the need to pass something to protect dreamers in the United States, who are critical for the economies, for the for the for the communities where they live. It's essential to to pass and find a legislative solution for dreamers. They, this is something that cannot depend on the administration anymore. And I'm hoping, willing to see the political will uh, on both parties to pass something that protect dreamers. Uh, also, I'm, we're crossing fingers and working very hard at the National Immigration Forum to see a protection for all those uh, Afghan evacuees who were evacuated from, from Afghanistan after, after the Taliban took over. Um, they don't have many options, alternatives to come here to the United States, so we're pushing for uh, an Afghan Adjustment Act where we're trying to help them um, you know, have a legal status in the United States without having to go through, through parole or asylum. We, have, we want to protect them because that's one of the promises that, our, that the United States government uh, made for them. So uh, I'm not sure if this is a prediction, but more a wish. Uh, hopefully we can see those two, those two bills pass uh, this year. Gotcha. Uh, great. And so you mentioned where where the immigrationforum.org. Uh, anything else you wanted to, to shout out or uh, highlight before we sign off? I just want to thank you, everyone out there working on the immigration advocacy space. It's uh, I realize how difficult it is uh, to celebrate. We have to celebrate even the smallest victories. But to know that you will find allies and partners in the in the National Immigration Forum, uh, we we share the the we are we are fighting for the that common goal and also you know keep in mind all of you even those of you who are not perhaps engaged with the immigration advocacy world the importance of immigrants despite the economy despite the the population just think of the of, of those neighbors of you with whom you watch soccer or enjoy a beer or uh for instance today i had i had the most delicious the most delicious uh, uh lunch at uh, at, a, at a Thai restaurant, Bo Thai here, run by immigrants, operated by immigrants. So even gastronomically, it makes sense <laughs> to to bring more immigrants. Immigrants make America stronger. There is a lot of space for them to be here, uh, both geographically and economically. So thanks again for the space, and and let's keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for hopping on uh, this episode of Immigration and Mobility, Arturo. Uh, Number two, we'll have you on in the future. Love chatting with you. It was thank a pleasure so chatting with you too, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, to our friends at Switching Board, uh, thank you so much for hosting us, and uh, thank you all for tuning in.